This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. What I'm going to talk about, and I'll try to go through these fairly quickly and maybe leave some time for a few questions, is how, um, at least how we approach the tricuspid valve. Um, and my belief is just like we have a, um, um, an approach that's very systematic for the mitral valve in adults, uh, we need to have the same type of approach for the tricuspid valve in kids, mainly because often this is the systemic AV valve. So what I'm going to do is um, talk about the, the various groupings. I, I believe it's useful to think about it in these groupings simply because the technical uh, repairs are completely different, uh, and also the disease processes are completely different. But from a surgical, surgeon's standpoint, um, to tackle each one of these requires different techniques. Uh, I'm not going to go in detail over all of the, uh, the technical nuances, but um, uh, at least I'll show you what, uh, a description of what, what's involved. Epstein's rare anomaly, but we all see it. Um, it's one of the biggest challenges for the surgeon as far as reconstructing the valve, uh, but more importantly for the patient, even if they have a reconstructed valve, they have diseased right ventricle, and that's going to be with them the re entire rest of their life. So it's an important part of our consideration, but up until probably the last decade, our ability to really repair these valves uh, was fairly limited. Uh, we've had nice ways to, to classify the disease. Uh, this is the... the, the um, uh, ABCD classification, and mainly what this is trying to describe is the size of the thinned out atrialized portion or the degree of displacement of this um, leaflet tissue uh, towards the outflow tract of the right ventricle. Most of the patients that we see are in the A and B category. Occasionally we'll see somebody in C, and it's very rare to see a, a patient in the D category. Uh, and often those, those children are, are, are quite ill very early in life and end up going down a single ventricle pathway. But this is a very typical echocardiogram. This is a, obviously a two-dimensional echocardiogram um, in, in both views. But what's, what's striking uh, in these patients, and the left ventricle is almost like a little appendage of the right ventricle in these patients. It's severely compressed. And so often we will measure lower ejection fractions in these patients, and it scares us from actually going in to do a repair, um, but it shouldn't. It is simply a compressed ventricle, and it's functioning uh, quite well. Um, MRI um, is helpful, um, but probably more useful in the way of volume measurements. Uh, it does give us a quantification of the uh, degree of regurgitation, uh, but really for planning purposes, what you want to see is how much leaflet tissue do you have available to work with. Whether you see it in an MRI like this one or whether you see it in an echocardiogram probably doesn't really matter. What you want to know is do you have a lot of leaflet tissue. When you do, you can reconstruct that valve. Um, the technique that's now adopted by most centers, I think, uh, it is, is the cone technique. This is described by... by uh, uh, da Silva in Sao Paulo, who's now actually, I think, in the U.S., um, and he basically took the original concept of Carpentier, uh, 
which was to mobilize the inferior leaflet, cut out the, the attachments to the free wall, rotate it around, and Carpentier didn't rotate it 360 degrees. He rotated about 120 degrees and stopped there. And the main reason is because he thought that if you just got a bileaflet valve, that was going to work. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't. You really need to bring that inferior leaflet all the way around to the rudimentary septal leaflet, create a true cone, that's the name. Um, and this is what, um, what um, De Silva's major contribution was, was recognition that you really had to free up all of this leaflet tissue, all of the tethered attachments to the free wall, rotate that valve clockwise, and even if there's only a tiny amount of rudimentary septal leaflet, mobilize it and use it as part of your repair. This, in my view, was a huge, huge step forward because now, in, in very rare exceptions, uh, we can reconstruct almost all of these valves with native tissue. In some cases, you do need to add a little bit of pericardium, usually autologous, in this portion, um, and that works quite well, but uh, in most cases, that's not even necessary. Um, the outcomes of these, and basically that slide is looking at their death from, from this type of uh, mortality, long-term mortality. Out to five years, we've had one death in 120 patients, so the mortality is very low. Uh, we've had reoperations, uh, not all of them early, most of them are actually late, uh, and that reoperation curve typically flattens after about a year and a half. In other words, if you're going to have required doing reoperation, you tend to see it relatively early in these patients, and most of those uh, were were patients that that um, are, were older patients uh, and probably should have had a valve replacement uh, to begin with. Tethered leaflets is something that often people call Epstein's, but is not. Uh, tethered leaflets is just that. It's uh, lots and lots of leaflet tissue, but the septal leaflet starts close to the normal position in the AV valve annulus, um, and, but is tethered. It doesn't float up to make the valve competent, and so the consequence of that is a broad central jet. I've seen a lot of kids being called Epstein's with this, and it's not. This is not Epstein's disease. It's a very different disease, um, um, and it's really tethering of the leaflets. A ring annuloplasty here is completely inefficient. Why? Because it's almost like two skis, two tips of skis trying to hold back the tide. Uh, they can't. You're going to get regurgitation because the tip of those leaflets is actually tethered uh, towards, the, um, uh, towards the wall, either the free wall uh, or the uh, septum. So not infrequently, it's associated with, uh, with critical pulmonary stenosis or pulmonary intact septum. This is a very typical valve that we see in kids with pulmonary intact septum. We rescue the RV. They show up with tricuspid regurgitation. This is the most common pathology we see. Uh, what do we do? Well, our technique is just to simply release these tethered leaflets. Uh, they have multiple accessory attachments to either the septum or the free wall. The, the anterior papillary muscle is, is undelaminated, and we have to uh, delaminate it. So here's an example. Um, in this case, this is an adult, uh, and you can see this is the septal leaflet that we're trying to free up, and it's totally tethered down. It's got multiple, multiple attachments, uh, and you have to just simply start cutting those to release that, that leaflet. And you can see their attachments are both to the edge, but also to the middle of the leaflet, um, and, uh, and simply uh, releasing those will begin to, uh, to uh, release that, that valve. Um, um, this is the anterior, this is the same case. Now we're looking at the anterior 
leaflet. And you can see the papillary muscle is really not well formed. It's got attachments to the free wall, which are tethering it to the free wall. So uh, what we're doing is we're just simply cutting those attachments. And you can see how the, the papillary gets released as you keep cutting uh, and really try to base that papillary as close to the apex as you possibly can. This technique we learned from the cone, uh, where, where often we're doing that in order to delaminate that, uh, that ventricle. Um, what I was showing there was actually the, the closing of the anterior septal commissure, and almost always in the older patients, we're using a, a ring just because they often present with very dilated ventricles. So that, in my view, is the treatment for a tethered tricuspid valve. Um, uh, this is just testing of the valve. Um, and this is the post-operative study. What is not shown well here, is, and although you can kind of see it, you can see how that septal leaflet now tips up so it actually meets the uh, anterior leaflet. And that's what's really uh, causing uh, coaptation. Uh, it's not that we added any material whatsoever. Uh, we did reduce the annulus, uh, however. So those two uh, account for the congenital lesions that we see with very abnormal valves to begin with. Um, then we have acquired lesions, and the most common one that we're seeing now in adults is actually a tethered septal leaflet. Same pathology, but it's due to the way that people close the VSD patch uh, at the time of the uh, tetralogy repair. Uh, and here's an example of an uh, an, a, uh, uh, older patient. He was in his late teens. You can see uh, actual prolapse of the anterior leaflet past the septal leaflet with this very typical jet that hugs the, the uh, atrial septum. Um, this patient had needed a pulmonary valve uh, insertion because of their pulmonary regurgitation, but the volume of this right ventricle was not going to reduce to normal if all we did was put in a pulmonary valve. I think in these kids, uh, in, these, in these patients, you need to do something to the, uh, to the tricuspid valve as well. And so typically what we do uh, is try to free up that um, tethered uh, septal leaflet as much as you can, but simply closing that commissure, uh, the anteroseptal commissure with interrupted sutures in almost all cases gets rid of the problem. It's a very simple, short, easy procedure to do. It doesn't take more than about 15 minutes and doesn't add a lot to the procedure. But if you have an older tetralogy patient with at least moderate TR, I think this is what you ought to do. And then the final one that I'm going to talk about is the one that I think Jerry uh, just mentioned is the same patient, uh, which is a patient with a systemic tricuspid valve. Uh, in this case, it happens to be a patient with a hypoplastic left heart syndrome, although we do see, you can see this in any patient with a, a, um, a systemic tricuspid valve. In this case, this is exactly the same case that he showed you, severe, severe uh, tricuspid regurgitation. This child showed up very late. He was being really treated for heart failure. Uh, when what he needed was a, a tricuspid valve repair, and this is what we found. So here's his anterior leaflet, and you can see the cords are just gone. So it's exactly what uh, Jerry saw on the 3D echo. Um, and, and so there was really no support for this uh, free edge of the, um, uh, of the valve. And so what we did was um, we put in artificial cords, and this is Gore-Tex suture, and in this case this is 5 an eight-year-old, so we use 5-0 Gore-Tex suture. Pin the base of it to, you have to do it to fibrous tissue. This is going through the fibrous head of the papillary muscle. This is the nearest papillary muscle that I could find. Uh, in the tricuspid valve, it's not like in the mitral where it's an obvious place to put it. In the tricuspid, you have to sort of figure out where you're going to put it. 
Um, and, you, and, and I put in multiple loops. And I think I find that that's the key. Put in multiple loops. So that loop of uh, suture goes through the tip. Uh, and I put multiple loops and then tie it so that um, the, um, the tip of that papillary has to be at the level of, uh, sorry, the tip of the knot has to be at the level of the annulus of the tricuspid valve. So that leaf, it has to be able to float up all the way to the, uh, to the annulus. Um, and then uh, the final step was to uh, close the, um, the uh, commissure. And I'm not going to go over that in great detail, but this is the end result. And then the final step was um, to uh, put in an annuloplasty ring. And I think Jerry already showed you the, uh, what the echocardiogram looks like. Now, the sad part of it is that this child came in very late. Uh, and there was a concern about the fact that uh, he had severe TR, he was a single ventricle and had ventricular dysfunction, so no one wanted to do anything about it, and unfortunately they just kind of kicked the can down the road. And now by the time he shows up, I'm not sure that his ventricular function is going to return. And I think part of the problem here is that we have looked at the tricuspid valve as the forgotten valve, as Tal said. Uh, we're afraid to actually tackle it. Uh, and in a child with a single ventricle, my argument is you tackle it long before uh, you begin to lose any uh, systolic function. Uh, once you do, um, it, 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 you're trying to survive as a Fontan physiology and with ventricular dysfunction, that combination is not a very good one. So in summary, um, my approach to um, congenital tricuspid valve disease um, is, is to try to categorize them into the groups that uh, I think we see most commonly. Um, there are specific repair techniques for these, uh, and, and you really need to understand the concept uh, and, and have experience with it. Well, once you do, it's a relatively straightforward thing to do. Um, and uh, however often they're, they're involved with other complex repairs. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.